Hi. Can you hear me? There I am. Um, hi, my name is Scott. I am the lead pastor here at Jacobswell, and super privileged to be with you. I am wearing a suit, um, <laughs> which those of you who don't know me are probably like normal, and those of you who do know me are clapping, um, because <laughs> that's a rarity. Um, people are worried about me. We're saying your collar's up and all that stuff. So if there's anything going wrong, uh, just let me know, and we'll stop, and we'll correct. Shout out to Rachel Palmer. Uh, Rachel Palmer put all this together. So shout out to Rachel. Where is Rachel? Is Rachel in here? There's Rachel. Um, and also, her, her kids were involved in this, so thank you to Julia and to Jake as well. So thank you, guys. A um, couple other things before we jump into the time of teaching. We felt like this was a great opportunity just to give you a sense of... Um, Kind of what comes next for us as a community. Easter is obviously a huge deal for us and, um, and a real high point in the year for us. But there's a couple other things that we would want you to know about in kind of this next season. For us, for those of us who travel with Jacob's Well throughout the year, you know, discipleship course, which is kind of our big thing, just came to an end. So this feels like in some ways the end of our ministry year, but there's a couple other high points that we really wanted to highlight today. The first of which is Baptism Bash which will be on May 21st. Um, what we do is we do just a different kind of gathering. We put a horse trough or whatever it is right here. We baptize a bunch of people. It's a party. It's a blast. The kids get splashed. Uh, then what we're going to do this year is we'll do a community meal directly. We'll actually do a fancy pants community meal. We'll do a catered community meal. Ooh. Um, and so make it a little bit special for our community. In some ways, I think of this like our second Easter at Jacob's Well. Today, we celebrate the new life that was won for us in Christ through the cross and the resurrection. On Baptism Bash Sunday, we celebrate the new life that's among us, what Jesus has actually done in the individual lives of people. If you would like to get baptized on that day, uh, we will have a number of times and, and a number of ways that we invite you to do this. But if you know that you're ready for that, we have a banner on our website, jacobswellnj.org, right now that looks like this. You can go ahead and press on that, um, fill out a very simple form there. Uh, we'll probably then have a conversation about uh, why you have that desire, and, uh, and we'll get you baptized on May 21st. So that's kind of the first high point that we would want in your calendars. The second thing probably feels farther away than it actually is, which is the wonder that is Well Kids Camp. Yeah, there we go. Well Kids Camp, um, some of you know this. This is the artist formerly known as Vacation Bible School here at Jacob's Well. We call it Well Kids Camp because um, we like to see it as deeply connected to everything else we do with kids. We are deeply invested um, in the lives of the little ones in our midst, and this is an extension of that. Of course, we would invite those outside of our community as well Invite your family members, invite your neighbors, your friends, your kids' classmates, and all that. But we wanted to give you a save the date on this. So that's July 10th to 14th. We know that vacations uh, are actively being planned and all that stuff. And it always blesses us when uh, both parents and kids kind of plan around this so that you can be there. So again, ample opportunities to register for that, to volunteer for that. Um, that is one of the, the biggest things that we kind of do together as a church but just wanted to put this on your calendars for now. Cool? With that, um, we will head into the time of teaching. The church uh, for, for many, many years, uh, especially in, in a context like ours, has participated in a famous call and response, which is that the one on stage says, He is risen, and you say, He is risen indeed. So we're going to try that. He is risen. He is risen indeed. With vigor. He is risen. He is risen. One more time. He is risen. He is risen. 
there may be no more urgent statement to examine for yourself than that, than whether or not, frankly, the absurdity of that call and response is based in actual fact or is at best a fantasy, at worst a misguided thing to build your whole life around. And so what we're going to do this morning is through this passage in the Gospel of John, I want to look at why there's actually really good reason to think that this absurd thing of he is risen, he is risen indeed, a man was dead and wasn't dead anymore, that there's actually good reason, we're going to use our minds, there's good reason to think that at least this was reported as though it were actually a thing that happened. I want you to get a sense through what Melly just read of how this feels not like myth, not like um, sort, of a, sort of a dolled up, hopeful account of what we all wish had happened, but how it feels rooted in the soil of the first century halfway across the world on a normal Sunday morning, how it feels rooted in, in real time, space, and history. And then after we do that, I want to talk a little bit about what this might mean, what this means for the world, what this means, call it what this means publicly, what this means about human history, what this means about who we are as people, about what the world is about, but then I want to land it a little bit closer to home in terms of the meaning. So we're going to look at why this feels like actual history, and then if it is, if you just allow yourself for a moment to think, if this really did happen in actual fact, what might that mean? us. So if you're able, you can turn with me. You have Bibles underneath the chair in front of you. I'm sure that we'll do our best to show this up on screen, but it's helpful if you're looking on with me as we go. I am in John, which is in the New Testament, um, about, I don't know, 80% of the way through the Bible. John is one of the tellings of the life of Jesus. It's actually um, as far as we can tell, sort of his closest companion, his closest earthly companion is John, and this is his telling of what happened. So the setting here, of course, is just a couple days after the brutal events of the crucifixion, of Jesus' trial, of his false arrest, of his trumped-up charges, of the injustice that he experiences there, of his torture, of them trying to utterly and completely silence any, any lingering of Jesus' influence in the Roman Empire, any lingering of the blasphemy that he had spoken throughout his life. This has been watched by, um, by many, watched by some, not all of his closest companions, as we'll talk about, but this has been publicly witnessed, his death, publicly witnessed, him being taken down, his lifeless body, in the inertness of death being taken down and put in a grave. And now this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, we'll talk about who she was, came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. What would you conclude? What would you conclude? Right. Yeah, right? Uh-oh. Here's, here's what we think we would think. He is risen. He is risen indeed. 
One of the, one of the um, most unfair things that you can do historically is, uh, this really doesn't stand up to any kind of examination, is to say, well, these people were pre-scientific. They didn't understand science and natural law the way that we do. They hadn't taken high school biology. They didn't understand that, that when, you know, a body's dead, that it's really dead. And so they just thought, like, bodies come back to life. No, 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 no. In some ways, they're more familiar with death than we are. Right? In modern culture, we do everything possible to avoid the reality of death and being near to death. And most of us are a little bit weirded out when we, when we actually approach death in, in any of its forms, a funeral or an actual body or something on the news or what, whatever it is. You're living in a culture at that time where, where death was front and center. They understood that when a body's dead, it's dead. So when she goes and sees that the tomb is open, here's what she does. So she ran back, verse 2, and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. That's John. That's the one writing this account as best we can tell. He's come to call himself the one that Jesus loved. Now, this is either petty, <laughs> like a weirdly petty thing, or it's actually the ultimate sort of humble move where John is saying, I'm not going to insert myself in the story. I'm just one that Jesus happened to love. You can make your conclusion. We're cynical Jersey people. I know which one you're thinking it is. Um, <laughs> the one who Jesus loved, you'll see that it might be petty later on, uh, said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. They thought what Dana Lenahan thought, um, and we do not know where they have laid him. She said, I would think the body was stolen. That's what she thinks, is, oh no, someone's taken the body. This was such a problem at that time, by the way, that eventually the emperor had to create an edict um, and make it a much more uh, intensely punishable crime to, to steal out of the grave, right? So they are not, hear this, now, Jesus has gone around saying time and time again, on the third day I will rise. They will put me to death, but on the third day I will rise. In fact, John's gospel has the longest account of the conversation that Jesus has on the night before he's crucified with his disciples. And in that conversation, copious amounts of times he says, it's going to be bad and it's going to be really good. You're going to mourn, and then there's going to be joy. I'm going to be put to death, and then three days later, I rise. It is the third day, according to counting, right? Not 72 hours later. Friday's the first day. Saturday's the second day. Sunday's the third day, okay? If that's ever bothered you, right? We're not talking about 72 hours. We're just talking about on the third day. It's the third day. They've heard this for three years now, and even they aren't spring-loaded to go, we should probably at least go see, right? She's got to go run and get Peter and John, who are like the disciple of disciples. They're like the leaders. And she's like, and, and they're not there. On the third day, on the third, if they were spring-loaded to expect resurrection, if that really was something that, that they could get into their minds and conceptualize more easily than we do, where in the world are they on the third day? It's only Mary Magdalene. By the way, they admit it. That's part of what's so interesting here. They don't look like, if you're trying to build a movement off of a historical fact, and you are now the leaders of that historical fact, you probably don't go, yeah, we weren't expecting it. Yeah, we thought it would probably be kind of unbelievable if it actually happened. Yeah, we didn't even check that morning, right? It's one of those things that has the sense of, why would they say it this way? In some ways, the only conclusion is because it happened this way. So Peter went out with the other disciple 
and they were going towards the tomb. <laughs> this is so good. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple, that's me, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Okay. Now, either what's going on here is sort of what you're doing, which is a humorous like, Peter, I beat you there. Or it's just a random detail. Look, a lot of John's gospel, we've been walking through it. If, you, if, you've, been, uh, if you've been here for, for the last few months, we've been walking through John's gospel. And there's this thing that happens in John where there are some parts that feel like sort of summaries. Like these are the kinds of things that Jesus said when he was approached with this kind of situation, right? Um, the, the, the way that they think about history and all those things back then, they don't have like the, yeah, but what did he say exactly? That's not the, the level that we're rising to. Instead, it's okay to say, yeah, these are the kinds of things that Jesus was fond of saying after he was challenged, after a miracle. You're still reporting real fact, but it feels sort of like a little bit more of a summary. This doesn't feel, this has details that you're like, okay, thank you for who got there first, right? You gotta realize though, looking back, these details buzz with such different kind of meaning and significance for them because it changes everything that they're going like, no, this is exactly how it happened. Both of them were running together. The other side way outran Peter, reached to him first, verse five. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Again, thank you for that detail. Why do we need that detail? We really don't unless it happened this way. It almost feels like a waste of words, unless John is just really trying to say, this is the most important thing that I'm going to tell you. This is exactly what happened. And again, he's admitting, I didn't even go in. I didn't even go in. Simon Peter, oh, he's going in. If you've learned anything about Simon Peter, he's the impulsive one. He's, he's a bull. He's rushing in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Again, thank you for that detail. This detail probably does have a little bit more significance for them as they look back. If you rob a grave, I don't know how many of you have done this um, in the ancient world, but if you rob a grave, uh, first of all, you've got to go through some nastiness because there's a body in there. Um, they would wrap it in 75 pounds, we're told, of spices, which in Jesus' case, you know who provided the spices? It's just kind of cool since it's recent for us. Not Joseph. He provided the tomb. Nicodemus provided the spices, which is really interesting. Um, Jalen's boy, Nico, as he called him. Um, so it's wrapped in spices because the body would be decomposing. And what you would do is you would take that body out you would bring it with you, you'd somehow carry it out. So, so a human person plus 75 pounds, you'd carry it out. And you certainly, certainly, certainly wouldn't take the time to unwrap a decomposing body and, and fold up the linens. Okay, this is strange. This is probably them going. Now, they see this. Peter goes in. He's examining. Everything's folded up. Um, and then he concluded. He came out and he said, he is risen. Still doesn't strike him. This is probably something after the fact that he goes, how weren't we tipped off? The, the, the linens were folded. Like they were, remember there was one up there and there was one down here. Still, we didn't believe it. Still, we weren't expecting it. Then the other disciple who had reached tomb first, that's in the text, who had reached tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. Now, this is interesting. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Right? This is him confessing. We didn't get it. 
when he would say that he was going to rise from the dead, we were like, cool, that's a metaphor. Don't let anyone tell you that the Christian faith and that resurrection is primarily a nice spiritual metaphor for the fact that things can become new and there's always a new start. No, 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 no. We are talking bodily, historical fact here. And he's saying, yeah, when he said, I will not be dead anymore, we thought, yeah, nice spiritual metaphor for probably something else that's going to happen. Like there's hope beyond uh, the bad thing that's about to happen. (laughs) Check this out. Verse 10. This is like wild. Then the disciples, what? All right, it's early, Um, right? Like there's coffee. Um, We'll grab bagels on the way home. They go home. These guys go home. They They are unmoved. Why say John believed and then they go back home? Because I think that John's belief is a private matter for him that at this point he's a little embarrassed by. He's a little like, I, I, that's when I knew. That's when I knew, right? And if he was flexing in this moment, he would say, that's when I knew and I went back and I told everybody. Instead, the next time that we see John is in the second half of what was read, which is on the evening of the first day, verse 19, the doors being locked where the disciples were, including John, for fear of the Jews. John goes back to the house and everybody's, everybody's hiding out. What do they mean by fear of the Jews? They're saying, if this, is what he, if this is what they did to our leader, we're probably next. The very reasonable conclusion In fact, the Jewish authorities are after them to make sure that this whole movement is squashed out. John goes back believing that Christ has been raised and locks himself behind the door. Initial faith isn't always the strongest faith is one thing that we're saying. Also, a privatized faith is often a faith that struggles to find any kind of traction. Check this out. But Mary, verse 11, stood weeping outside the tomb. And by the way, this weeping here is not, it's a very uh, weak translation of the word that's here. It's not the word that's normally used for weeping. It's a word for crying out. She's wailing. And I know this hits very close to home for some of us. But she is crying the cry that you cry graveside. Just days after this has happened. She's wailing outside the tomb. We also also get this nice little adversative. But, Mary, they go home. She stays. Now, we we have full evidence. She doesn't stay because she thinks, I'm going to hang out because I think Jesus might show up. She stays because she's devastated. And this is what faithfulness does. As one commentator puts it, Jesus, if there's a demand that Jesus makes of us in the Gospel of John, it's this demand that we abide in him. You've heard that language if you've done discipleship course with us. It's an old school word that probably the best new school sort of modern translation of is like stick with Jesus, hang out with Jesus, remain, just just stay close, right? She's still doing that even though she believes that Jesus is dead inside this tomb or robbed, taken away. And now her devastation is doubled because now she doesn't even know where the physical body is. But she's staying close. She's moving toward. So that commentator goes on to say is some of us need a Magdalenic faith that even when it appears that Jesus has deserted us, we stay close. 
as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Now she takes a look. Verse 12. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the foot. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Which, okay, this is how deep her grief is. She's interacting with angelic beings. It's not enough. Okay? It's not enough. This is one of the things that we saw in the, in the discipleship course. Some of you did with Kimberly and I, where we talked about suffering, where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we're told angels are sent to comfort him, and it doesn't completely dry up his tears. Right? Like we think if I had all the spiritual um, resources that I actually needed, I would never mourn, I would never be in pain, I would never suffer again. She has angels attending to her and she's still crying. You can hear a little bit of the edge in what she says to them too. Now the most stunning thing in human history happens. You ready for this? Listen to how quiet it is. Listen how quiet this interaction is. The other gospels, the other telling Matthew, Mark, Luke, they're a little bit more laser light showy. People are coming out of graves. There's, there's rumblings. The tower, the curtain in the, in the temple is torn. Like, there's, there's a lot more pizzazz. Listen how quiet this is. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. She didn't know it was Jesus. Side note. This is what we always see when Jesus shows up initially. Is he's not immediately recognizable. What does that tell us? This is always the case. Think of, think of those of you who, who know the Bible a little bit more. On the road to Emmaus, remember this? He walks with two of his disciples. They go an entire journey, and it's only a certain mannerism of his when he breaks the bread in a certain way that makes it go, oh, and then he's gone. Okay? This recurs. When Jesus um, shows up, uh, uh, some of the disciples are fishing and he's on shore. They don't immediately recognize him. A lot of times they recognize him through his voice, as Mary does here. Here's what this is saying. Look, our resurrected bodies will still have a, have a sameness about them, but oh, they'll be different. Anybody want a new body? <laughs> Anybody feeling the reality of aging, the reality of, of the decomposition of this world and say, this whole thing needs to be made new? It will be. <laughs> it will be, Alan Mitch. It will be, brother. Right? It's such an interesting fact. Again, it's like you can't make this up. It's a really hard thing to make up. You'd be like, she turned and she saw Jesus. And of course it was Jesus because it was his resurrected body. He was fully resurrected. And so of course she knew who he was immediately. Why say she didn't know it was him? That's a weird, it's weird. He hasn't been gone for four years. He's been gone for 48 hours. She doesn't recognize him. Why tell it this way? The best explanation of why you would tell it this way is because it's how it happened. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? If you go back in the Gospel of John, the very first question Jesus asked, the very first words out of his mouth in the Gospel of John, you have all this beautiful statement about who Jesus was, but then these disciples of John the Baptist come to him, and Jesus' very first question is, guess what? Who are you seeking? Who are you seeking? To be just as easy translated, what are you seeking? Think that this is the question that John's gospel is asking us. 
What do you want out of life? What are you giving most of your time, energy, heart, desire, devotion to? Is it the right thing? Is it actually leading to satisfaction and joy in all the things that the world seems to promise it will? Or maybe are you looking for the wrong thing? What are you seeking? Probably here, partially, what his question implies is, what kind of savior were you seeking? Because I bet you weren't seeking a savior who would do what I'm about to blow your mind that I've done. You don't have this category. I'm about to give it to you. Jesus comes to you today and he says, what are you seeking? Why'd you come here today? You say, I was dragged by a relative. Good. What are you seeking? What are you looking for in life? Everybody's seeking something. You could say, I'm not religious, right? Like this, this is a common thing. Like I'm not religious. I don't really do the worship thing. No, no, no. Yes, you do. Because worship is assigning ultimate value to something. So it might not be anything with a religious garb to it, but you've assigned ultimate value. You've decided that thing is worth my life. Is it, is it delivering? Is it enough? Can it do what this Savior does? Love this. Mary, who do you think he was? You can picture the question as she's retelling the story later. And she's like, I don't know the gardener, right? <laughs> Supposing him to be the gardener. Again, interesting detail. If it didn't happen, then why would you make that up? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. What she's saying is, look, if you've had to move him and you need this tomb or whatever, I'll take his body. I'll do whatever I have. I'll take a decomposing body with me wherever in order for it to receive the honor that it's due. Magdalenic faith. I love that. Jesus said to her, Mary. Mary. She turned. Didn't she already turn? There's two turnings here. One, woman, what are you seeking? They took his body away, gardener. Thank you very much. I'm talking to angels. <laughs> they took his body away. If you know where it is, I'll take it. She turns back. Now he says from behind her, Mary. And she turns again. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Golly. Rabboni, which means teacher. I love this. She doesn't call him Lord. She doesn't call him Messiah. She doesn't even call him Jesus. She doesn't call him the Christ. She calls him almost certainly the name that she had gotten really comfortable calling him, even as the reality of who he was dawned on her. This is, a this, is not a, this is not a moment of reverent title. This is a nickname. This is, like, this is like how mom and dad goes from a title and a role to just how you think of someone. This is like your best coach who the rest of your life you just call coach long after they, they were with you in T-ball. This is surely rolls off her tongue because she says, oh my goodness, it's you. Jesus said to her, don't cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brother and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. This sounds a little weird. This sounds a little cruel. All that he's saying there is, Mary, I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving again. I'll be back. You see what he's saying here. And he's also not saying, don't cling to me because my body is radioactive or whatever. Because just a couple of, of uh, just a week later, he shows up to Thomas. And what does he invite Thomas to do? Those of you who know the story. Go ahead, touch me. Go ahead, touch. Right? There's nothing mystical, magical about touch. It's literally another sort of mundane, benign detail. But she's like, and then Jesus was like, Mary, 
I'm not going back. He's saying, I am ascending to the Father. He will eventually leave. But he's saying, that time hasn't happened yet. And I need you to do something. I need you to go to my brothers, say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. And they believed and were forever changed. You know why one of the bogus reasons they don't believe her is? Because you don't believe women at that time. Now that sounds very, very um, uh, offensive to our modern ears. Guys, women's testimony was not allowed in the court of law at that time, right? Woman couldn't get up and speak and say, no, 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 I know who committed the murder. They'd say, yeah, but you're a woman. Now that sounds offensive to you. The first announcement of the gospel, Jesus puts on the lips of who? A woman. Take all your offense, <laughs> meet Jesus. Let's turn the world upside down, guys. From his very first act, you go and announce. This is the fancy pants word that's, that's the word for like announcing the gospel. Go and announce it to them. You get to do it, Mary. And she goes, and as we're told in other gospels, they don't believe her. They're like, that's very sweet, but no way God empowers you to be the one to tell us. Again, if you're trying to, to sort of doll up the most significant historical event, why do it with inadmissible evidence? The only reason to report that a woman was the first one to see him seems to be because a woman was the first one to see him and the first one empowered to announce that he was raised. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being closed where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. They're terrified. You got to remember. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, how? Locked doors. Boom. He's there, right? Different kind of body, y'all. We're dealing with a whole different kind of thing. It's him, though. They know that it's him. What does he say? Peace be with you. He says, what's, what's good? This is just a common greeting. What's up? What's good? Peace be with you. He says it twice, though, because he realizes this is, uh, this is unlike any peace be with you you've ever received in your life. Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. <laughs> I love that. It's like, we were glad. <laughs> like We did start to get it. We did start to rejoice. In that moment, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. He's commissioning them as he commissioned Mary Magdalene. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. And he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you give the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. In other words, what he's saying is what I set out to accomplish has happened. And now as you announce it, you have the great privilege of being the one who says the reprieve of your sins is real. But as you go, the other side of that coin has to be, and if you reject this message, if you reject this historical reality, you are still in your sins. He says the announcement of what I have done needs warning as well. And I wouldn't be faithful to what Jesus says here if I didn't say to some of you, this might be your chance. This might be you hearing the announcement of the forgiveness of your sins. Don't withhold that from yourself. Receive it, as the disciples are called to receive here. A couple things about the meaning of this. We get these beautiful clues throughout. There's two main things, I think, that the Gospel of John is often trying to communicate to us. Um, about what Jesus has done. Also, you have to understand, uh, again, those of you who have been traveling in the Gospel of John, you've gotten used to this. John is always, how many times have I said this? John is always doing two things at once. He's reporting what actually happened, 
And then he's also looking back on the deeper significance of what happened. He's working at two levels. So I just walked you through what happened. And man, it really sounds like that's what happened. Use your mind. Use your mind. Say, oh, that's worth examining. That's worth rereading. What if that's true? Why did they tell it that way? Why so many holes in the testimony, right? If you were trying to make this this perfect little account. There's something deeper going on too. Check out how he starts this whole thing. Now on the first day of the week. We said that there's two main weeks in the Gospel of John. There's this one at the beginning and there's this one at this, the end that ultimately ends with the crucifixion of Jesus on a Friday and then Jesus alone in the grave on the Sabbath. We're at the beginning of a new week. Okay? And the beginning of that new week, it happens to also be where it says came to the tomb early. That's in the morning. It's the first day of the week in the morning, and it's dark. First day of the week in the morning, and it's dark. The second part of this happens, verse 19, on the evening of that day. Which day? The first day of the week, we're told again. First day of the week, first day of the week, first day of the week. Weeks, darkness, morning, evening. What, what do you think we're supposed to be thinking about? Anybody, take a chance. Creation, right? This is the creation rhythm. Now the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And then God speaks light into it and there was morning and there was evening on the first day. Right? One of the big themes in John's gospel is new creation. That Jesus is the bringer of new creation. In other words, what you and I need is not a spiritual upgrade package, okay? What this world needs is not some better advice. What this world needs is not a better religious system of how to make people holy and righteous and ethical. This world needs to be remade. You and I need to be remade. We are not just a little bit bad. We, we're, we're not just a little, look, you know yourself. I know what you present. I know what I present. We present, well, you know, things are pretty good. Um, I'm doing pretty well. And then our souls are saying, no, you're not, right? Your souls are saying, you don't have a shot. We're spiritually dead. We are disconnected from the one thing that we most need. And Jesus says, you need spiritual life in you. Now, in the darkness of the first day of a new week, there was morning and there was evening. And by the way, there was someone that she supposed was the gardener. Might that have been thrown in because there's some irony there? Because who walked in the cool of the day in the garden with our first parents, Adam and Eve? God himself. And then what does he do? What's his greatest provision in that moment? He comes close to his disciples. He comes super close to them. And we get this really weird detail that he gets socially awkward for a moment and he breathes on them. Why, why did he breathe on them? <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> what does that mean? You know what God did when he created human beings? When he brought absolutely nothing into somethingness? When he took inert death into a living being? We're told in Genesis 2 that he breathed the breath of life into the nostrils of the dust. And so humanity was created. That's the level of recreation you and I require. And it's what Jesus accomplished. 
he brought life. Just a couple weeks ago, we were talking about this, this interesting phrase where it says, um, in Jesus, was, or in God, in the Father, was life. And the Father gives that life to the Son. You need that life. You need to come alive. If things sometimes feel dead in you, dead in your story, it's because it's you need this. And he gives it and he'll breathe on you. He's the agent of new creation, which is your greatest need. How does he do it? He does it by taking away, by bearing on himself all of the junk that stands between us and God. You know how this works in relationship. You mess up enough in relationship, there's division there. There's distance, there's separation there, right? Whether that's on your side or their side, right? Like this is what sin does. It causes division. This is what sin has done in our own stories, we are separated from our creator. Not because he's petty and mad and wants to punish us. This is just what happens to relationships. God has a way of us thriving. And in our rebellion, we said, no, we want to live life the way that we want to live it. That's why the world is a mess. That's why we look around and say, how long, oh Lord, we need something new. And he says, yeah, that's what I came to do on this cross as I bore it all on me. I bore, most specifically, the forsakenness that we feel, the forsakenness that is evident every night on the evening news, the forsakenness evident in global geopolitical realities and school shootings and all of these things that we're bombarded with. He says, yes, that's because there is a forsakenness in this world. And then he stands on the cross, God in flesh, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He bore that on himself. He became it. I don't understand all of the mechanics of it, but we watch it as it happens. That's what kills him. He bore it. And he brought it to the grave with him. And do you know what his resurrection means? It means that he really died of sin. It was impossible. I know that what we think of primarily as impossible is Jesus' resurrection is impossible. Do you know that his death was impossible? Because the only thing that leads to death in the human machine is sin. So something must have happened to him for him to die, right? His death was impossible unless he became sin. So he really dies of sin. He takes that into the grave. And when he says, Mary, you know what he's saying? What I have done worked. Because your sin and death are still in the grave, and I'm not. And I'm not. I went and bore it and am victorious over it. There's this fascinating little detail where we're told that when, uh, when Mary looks in, she sees two angels sitting in white, sitting where the body of Jesus was laying, one at the head and one at the feet. You know what this almost certainly is, is John reflecting on? He's going, I get it. Oh my goodness, I get it. The most precious article in the Jewish faith was something called the uh, Ark of the Covenant, right? Indiana Jones. Um, and this, 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 this sort of tray was put in the temple, um, guarded by all of the things that were, that were set in place when the temple was put together, all these outer courts and then inner, 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 and then the holy place and then the holiest of the holy place. And then, boom, there in the middle is the Ark of the Covenant. And on the top of the Ark of the Covenant is this place called the Mercy Seat. And the Mercy Seat is where God would come and literally meet with his people. Do you know what stood on either side of that Mercy Seat? Show it, Tim. Cherubim were put on here. These are angels. And they're like this, boop, right? Boop, they're stretching out their upper back. It's a good tree hug stretch, right? They're like this, why? Everything about the temple was meant to guard the people from the presence of God. You know why? You go into the presence of perfect holiness, you're undone. Think of the worst thing you ever did. 
and the best person you know walking in at that moment. You feel your soul crushing even as you allow yourself to think of it? That's the dynamic here. Perfect holiness in the presence of sinfulness. That's why the temple looks more like Fort Knox than anything else. And even at the mercy seat, where only one person, the holiest person in all of Israel was able to go once a year to meet with God, even that place where God would come, two angels protecting you from that presence. And you know what the, the chief priest did? He sprinkled it with blood. He didn't touch it. He didn't touch the presence of God. He would sprinkle it. Boom, right? Like Kobe, right? Like he's just, he's just off because boom, the cherubim. Think of it. John looks back. He's like, where were they sitting? Mary, tell me again. Where are they? Yeah, like one at the head and one at the foot. And he goes, they were the cherubim. What are they doing now? Instead of, no, don't. Think of it. They're going, he's right there. Go, go touch him. Go cling to him. What Jesus accomplished was that the presence of God is no longer a fearful thing in our lives. It is something that we are encouraged to go and embrace and clutch to. In fact, something that as Jesus gives the spirit that can reside within the temples which are our very beings. This is how close Jesus makes God. Is the cherubim go from this to go, go. Why are you looking at us? Turn around, go to him. That's what all this means. It means that God is approachable, infinitely approachable. I want to get a little bit closer though. Because that's the implications for the world. What does it mean for each of us? Got to understand who we're dealing with here. Mary Magdalene. Little backstory on her. One of the only things we're told about Mary Magdalene is she had, she had seven demons, which you know what that means. Um, I don't know what that means, right? Like, here's what I do know. Seven is an idiom for just a whole bunch, okay? So she is, she is uh, as one commentator put it, she is mega demonized. She's a wild person. The, the longest count that we have is actually in Luke of someone who, is, who, is, who had these kinds of spiritual issues about them. And it's a guy who runs around the cemetery half naked, screaming out, tearing his clothes. No one wants to go near him, right? The garrison demoniac. This person, that's Mary Magdalene, okay? Why is she wailing outside the tomb? One, Jesus has already changed her life. Two, she's thinking... Oh no, without him, without the grace that I received from him, without the closeness that I received from him, how is anyone going to know? People know my story. I've got to go back to my hometown. I've got to explain, no, 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 there's one who vouches for me. There's one who drew me close. There's one who changed me. No, 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 I'm not the same person. I thought maybe the God of the universe came close enough to know me and the brokenness of my story. Now he's dead. We don't even know where his body is. She's screaming. And then Jesus says, Mary, Mary. You will not know who you really are until Jesus calls you by name. Okay? You will not know who you really are you allow Jesus to call you by name. Really quickly, I heard this this week, I found it really helpful, is a lot of us want certainty um, before we choose Jesus. That's impossible, and that's not what faith is. Faith also isn't an unreasonable leap into the unknown. 
We can reason our way to faith, but we can't reason our way to certainty. In other words, you can reason your way today in everything that you heard and what we read to, okay, might be true. That's what faith sounds like, by the way. Faith is uncertainty. Faith is it might be true. Here's the next step, though. To get certainty, you've got to commit and get vulnerable relationally. And then some certainty comes. You, again, you know this, right? Like um, any of you who, who are married, how did you know that they were the one? It's like, yo, you didn't. Let's just be real, right? Like you reasoned your way, said they seem pretty great, and we get along great, and or whatever, right? You reasoned your way to faith. Okay, I think you're the one. Although no one says that um, when they get married, rightly so. I think you're the one. Then you commit... You make yourself vulnerable. You open yourself up to the potential that it might not work out. And then as you build a life together, certainty comes. And if you said, how did 23-year-old me know that Sarah was the one? The honest answer is, I didn't. I just had enough faith to get vulnerable, commit, and, and, and to take that next step. This is what relationship with God is like. You can reason your way to faith. You can't reason your way to certainty. But you can reason and say, I'm willing to take a leap of faith because certainty will only come as you actually cling to Jesus like Mary does here, as you actually get to know him uh, relationally, open up vulnerably, is you will begin to have a sense that not only are you, is your heart actually clinging to him, but that you're being clung to. And as you pray, you'll feel like, man, yeah, like my, my thoughts clarify and, and, and my desires change and, and wisdom comes and, and you're like, wait, this is... It's a little strange. And there's never complete certainty, but those moments of certainty only come as you explore relationship. And Mary has experienced that, okay? The other thing that I'll say here is insofar as we are only known when we allow Jesus to say us by name, that, that it's in that vulnerable relationship that not only the discovery of the other person comes, but the discovery of ourselves comes such that it is in our most intimate relationships that we are most deeply known, amen, right? Like that's, I think you can agree with that. In saying her name, Jesus is reminding her of that in the midst of her grief, right? And he's saying, look, I'm not gonna leave you. I got you. I know you, I'm here. And what I just did actually makes possible a deeper kind of relationship than you could ever imagine. What your soul longs to hear is your name uttered by Jesus. Many of us have lost people. I can tell you, lost my mom, lost my grandma in the last couple of years. One of the things that I can conjure from both of them is the specific name that they would say over me. And sometimes I just like to hear them say that name in my mind because there's something deeply within me that says, man, I, I was known there. Here's a crazy thing. That's a whisper of one who will one day speak my name and call something even greater out in me. It says, now we see dimly as through a dark glass. Then we shall see Jesus face to face. He'll call you by name, you'll turn, and you'll see him at last and your soul will finally be alive. The disciples, right? We'll end here. Check it out. These dudes are not the greatest. 
they, um, they have heard Jesus preaching on the third day, third day, third day. They're now tucked away behind closed doors because they're terrified, okay? This is what you and I would have done. They're real people. They're not spiritual giants. They're not people prepared for the founding of a world religion, right? They're us. And they're like, oh, hey, anybody got an attic, right? And they book it, and they're in this room with the doors locked. Listen to the message that Jesus puts on Mary's lips. Jesus said to her, verse 17, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my, what? Go to my brothers. Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. Jesus throughout John's Gospel talks about the Father, but it is always, always, always in relationship to himself. My Father, my Father, my Father, my Father. Now he says, go tell my brothers that I am ascending to my father and your father. Christian, I'm going to to talk to those who have been following Jesus. Would there be anything more affirming on the lips of Jesus himself than if he showed up to you and he said, you know what, Jalen? Your brother. You know what, Melly? My sister. Because what you need (laughs) is the forgiveness of your sins. What you get is even better than that. You don't just get a reprieve. You don't just get a, yeah, you're you're clear. You get a a, a new creation. You get a new name. You get a new identity. You get a new family. You get a new perfect heavenly father. You get adopted in. What he's saying is that my forgiveness of sins means you're in. You're with me. You're one of us now. You're mine. You're my brother. You're my sister. You're God's children. Adopted in, brought in, right? I don't know if this is true, but I heard it this week that there was some judge in uh, somewhere in the world who uh, had final say over how this kid was, was going to be punished. This was like a recent thing. And not only did he say, I'm not going to punish you, but he said, what you need is a family, so we're bringing you home, right? Okay, that'll preach. Um, That's what we get, okay? Think of how, why are the disciples hiding? They're hiding because they think God has failed them. They're almost certainly hiding because they're hyper aware that they've failed God. Peter's in that room. Peter's in that room. Peter, 48 hours earlier said, I don't know Jesus. No, you're one of them. I don't know Jesus. You're one of them. I don't know Jesus. Go, 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 right? Three times. Before the cock crows, he denies Jesus. He's sitting in that denial. Some of them might feel like God failed them. Some of them feel like they, feel, they failed God. They certainly know there's no place for them left in the world. They've, they've put their chips in, and they've lost the hand. They're out. They've folded into that. Mary Magdalene first explodes. It says, he called you guys brothers. Peter's like, not me. No, he he called you brothers. And here's what I picture, a little sacred imagination here. Here's what I picture them being like, it's too good, Mary. It's too good. No way. It's too good. And then boom, on the evening of that first day, the first day of the week, he makes them wait. The door's being locked where the disciples are of fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and he says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Then having said this, 
These are connected. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then he says again, peace be with you. Common greeting, now loaded with meaning and significance. You know why he shows them his hands? Why it says, having said this, he's saying, your peace is earned and accomplished now. Your peace costs this. Your adoption, you're in because I was rejected. You have hope because I became hopeless in your stead. My wounds are real. I really died. I really became sin for you. Now you can have peace. He shows them his hands and his side because here's the reality is that so often we think that God wants to show up in our greatest moments of moral purity, in our greatest moments of moral achievement, in our greatest moments of, of effectiveness for him. And instead, he explodes into the locked rooms of our failure. He explodes into the locked rooms of our doubt. He explodes into the locked rooms of our messy stories. And he says, peace be with you. And then we say, it's too good to be true. And he said, these are too true to be denied. He says, these wounds are for you. And so don't just see this as some interesting historical fact. You've got to hear your name in those wounds. You've got to hear his voice speaking, not just the forgiveness of the sins of the world, but the forgiveness of your specific failings and story. And then he'll give you his spirit. He'll give you his presence. He'll cling to him. He'll give you a purpose in this world. And he'll say, go tell others how wonderful this is. Wherever this meets you this morning, you are never outside of the reach of grace you are never so good that you are not in need of grace. So whichever you think you are, so far that you don't deserve it, see those wounds. And maybe there's a little arrogance in some of us that says, I, I don't need any of this. I'm doing great. I'm killing it. Hear the question repeated over, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? Is it worth it? And can it do what I have done? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this truth. We thank you that we can build our lives on it as a firm foundation. Lord, where faith needs to arise in this room, I pray that it would supernaturally, God, that you would just give as a gift faith to some who need to take that step of commitment, who aren't certain, but maybe want to get vulnerable and say, God, what if all this is true? Would you meet me in that? God, would you? Would you show up in real ways in their story? Would you speak their name to them in a way maybe they've never heard it? God, for those of us who have grown dull to the, to the just amazing nature of all of this, God, revive our hearts today in this truth. Make us come alive again in the new creation that Jesus has won for us. God, meet us here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.